If you would, be turning with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. And I have a couple more announcements. I might just give these announcements and say amen and we'll go home because this is like the morning of announcements. But um, regarding the home groups, we're going to be doing, Lord willing, one over in American Canyon. We know we got some folks that live in that area. And so I'd like to get a, a better understanding of exactly how many people are in, in AC so that uh, we can kind of put that group together. So if you're interested in being part of a small group and you live over in that area or close to that area, would you please uh, let us know. You can sign up out in the foyer or talk to one of the pastors directly so we can get a, a good sense of how many people will be in that group. And so we're excited to be able to have that. And so we certainly want everyone to be involved. And then also, uh, August 1st, we're going to be having a guest speaker here. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, last week. Uh, there's a ministry called Far Reaching Ministries. They're in like 27 different countries, and uh, they're in seven of the 10 most dangerous countries in the world, and they support a lot of um, underground churches and pastors. And so the, the, the brother that oversees what they call the ghost operations those uh, seven most uh, dangerous places, is going to come here and he's going to share with us what's kind of going on in the field there. And uh, I'm very excited to have this guy. And if it's God's will, I may be going to South Sudan next year uh, to teach at a, a little conference there for the chaplains. And it's, it's radical ministry, you know. Um, in the last five years, I think they've had like 60 chaplains die uh, in, in combat there because it's just been a really a gnarly civil war happening and guys have even been burned alive and it's, uh, it's different. It's different than anything I've ever really uh, been exposed to or, or heard of and I'm very excited for this brother to come out and share with us because it's important for us to know what's going on with our brothers and sisters around the world and to be able to pray for them and support them and partner with them in, in one way or another. So I, I want you guys to be here. I want you to be here to, uh, to hear this message, and also, of course, we'll be having that gathering right after the service, so it'll be a great day, a great day to, uh, to come together, and so I'm excited about what God is going to do at that time. Sound good? All right. Praise the Lord. So today we're taking a little detour from uh, 1 Thessalonians, as I have had you turn to to Matthew, and we're going to be dealing with the issue of temptation. Temptation. You could say, as we've been working our way through Thessalonians, we've been talking about holiness and what that means, uh, being separate from the world, being separated unto God, being different, being distinct, being unique, that this is just another facet of holiness as we are fighting against temptation. As we are in the battle for righteousness, as we are giving it everything that we have to resist that which is unpleasing to God and, and which grieves his heart, we are all in the battle of temptation, and this is a very relevant message, a very relevant message for us all. I was talking with a brother earlier this week who just knows. Um, he's kind of new to the faith, and we were discussing how this is a new territory now, and he, he's very aware of his struggles and his propensities to, to fall short, to sin, and, and so just really praying and encouraging that brother to withstand the temptations that will most certainly come, right? And this is relevant to every one of us in this room. 
Can I get an amen? We know this. We know that we all have to fight against temptation. It is a constant and very vicious reality in our lives. Once you say yes to Jesus, you have an enemy of your soul and a bullseye on your back. Right? We know this. And the thing about temptation, as I said, it's such a, such a vicious reality. You know, I've heard it said, I can overcome any temptation except temptation. Right? I mean, that's about what it boils down to. I can overcome any temptation except temptation. And so we should have a healthy fear of it. We should have a healthy fear of temptation. We should not think too highly of our ability to handle temptation. That's what worries me. When I see somebody kind of going down a path and they're getting dangerously close to things that they should not be, and I try to encourage them, and they just, oh, I've got this. No, you don't. And when you have that kind of attitude, I know you don't. And that happens far too often. You know, we should not get too comfortable with temptation. We do that. We cozy up to it. We try to get as close to sin as we possibly can without actually doing it. When the Bible says, can you take fire into your lap and not be burned? And so we can't get too comfortable with it. We can't play with it. We must be aware of how temptation comes. And we must know how to fight against temptation in our lives. If we want to live lives, holy lives, that are pleasing to the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. We're going to see how the tempter works. How he works to take us out. And we're going to see how Jesus withstands. We're going to see how Jesus goes to battle with the tempter. We're going to see his perspective. And I think that is a, a, a very big insight for us. Our perspective sometimes is key in the battle against temptation, knowing what is most important, knowing what is on the line, knowing what we are cashing in for the temptation, whatever that might be. And so I trust and pray as we look at this, we're going to be encouraged, we're going to be challenged, that there will be fresh insight here into this, the reality of temptation that we all face. We're going to be better equipped to be able to walk the walk, to fight the fight in the name of Jesus. And so that's my prayer. So if you would allow me to pray for us before we dig into our text today. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and I cry out, God help us, help me. May you open our eyes and our hearts to the glories of your word. We all know how very difficult it is to live in this world and to walk the narrow path. We know, God, that you've called us to something higher, something greater. You've called us to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, to walk in the light as you are in the light. Yet at the same time, our flesh and Satan and this world, they pull on us, and it is relentless. It is never-ending. And so we are bombarded all the time, God, with temptation. And so would you, Father, please strengthen us? Would you encourage us by your word, and would you fill us with your spirit? Would you be worshipped and glorified as we study your word together? Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is a classic text of Scripture, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Oftentimes we hear it referred to as the temptations of Christ as He is there in the desert place. And so I've titled this message, Tested in the Wilderness. 
tested in the wilderness. And what this is at its core is the test of trusting God. That's what it boils down to, trusting God. That's how, that's how we are going to be tested. That's how we are going to be tempted. And there are three ways in which these tests come forward today for Jesus. Trusting God's provision, trusting God's timing, and trusting God's path for our lives. Is that not three major areas that we always struggle with? God's provision, God's timing, and God's path, God's plan in our lives. Those are three core areas that we are always tested in, and we're going to see that's exactly what Satan goes after with Jesus. And so the first test, trusting God's provision for our lives. If you'll look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, if you know what happened right before this, we know that Jesus had just been baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And it was this glorious mountaintop experience, if you will. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove falls upon him there in the waters. And this voice, the voice of the Father, comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The endorsement of heaven comes there for the Son in this moment. That's, that's pretty spectacular, wouldn't you say? That is a spiritual high if there ever was one, right? But then notice immediately after that, Jesus is now being led by the Spirit right into the wilderness. Now, when we think wilderness, we may be tempted to think like the forest, redwood trees, and, and things of that sort, but this is nothing like that at all. This is, I mean, there's nothing out there. It is barren desert terrain. I mean, it is just hellish. And so Jesus goes from this high, high to this low, low, and it is the Spirit that leads Him there. And we're told that He is being driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and that's, that's kind of interesting to consider. And we might ask, I thought that the prayer was, lead us not into temptation, right? But there's two things happening here simultaneously, and it's important for us to understand. God does not tempt us to sin. James makes that very clear. Each man or woman, we are tempted by our own desires. We are drawn away and enticed. God is not tempted, cannot be tempted, nor does he ever tempt us. Okay, that, that is what the enemy is all about. He's trying to discredit us, destroy us, take us out of the game, render us ineffective. He's doing everything in his ability to take us out. But God does test us. God tests. He will try us. He will prove us. He will reveal to us what is going on deep down in our hearts, who we really are underneath it all. He draws that to the top. And then he, he purifies us in that. And so there's really two different things happening here at the same time. The enemy is obviously doing everything that he can with a great sense of urgency to take the Son of God out, to disqualify him from his mission. But at the same time, Jesus is being tested. He is being proven as the one, the only one who could withstand sin perfectly in every point and then stand in our place as the righteous one with the righteousness that we can never have. Does that make sense? 
So there's a lot going on here. This is, this is a, a very significant moment in the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus here before He launches out into His public ministry. And just as the heavens opened and the Son of God was endorsed by the Father, now hell itself will be opened. And all of the fury from within as Satan emerges to try to take out the Son of God. This is a surprising turn of events. Because we just don't expect this. You, you take the moment that Jesus just had in the baptism, and then he goes right into this. And isn't that how it is for us so often? We love those mountaintop experiences, don't we? We want to live right there. That's where we want to stay. We come to know the Lord. We feel that. We experience that. And then all of a sudden, something comes out of left field. You know, I, uh, I just love this quote. Uh, Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and that's kind of what it's like. You know, we come into this thing, we know what it's going to be like, we're excited, we're on fire, and then we get punched right in the face. And now we're panicking. I didn't expect that. I don't know what to do now. And so that is just a very real, a very real uh, way in which it, it shakes down in the Christian life. And so he goes from the mountaintop to the valley really quickly. And Jesus is going to be tested. You need to know this. He is tested as a man. Jesus is truly God. We know this. He's the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. But He is also truly man. And this is one of the mysteries of the incarnation of, of Christ, that He could be truly God, God from eternity, yet at the same time, He took upon Himself a human nature. So He is not half man, half God, he is the God-man, and the Bible is very clear about that. And so Jesus did not relinquish his deity. He didn't empty himself or divest himself of his deity. He took upon himself a human nature when he was born into a physical body, born as a, as a babe there in the manger. And in obedience to the Father, he submitted himself to the limitations of that flesh, to the weakness, to the confines of that human nature. And he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I only do those things which are pleasing to the Father. And when God called upon him to do the miraculous, he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. That blows the mind, does it not? And why that's relevant to us is this is a picture of us, of a man who is truly human and everything that that means, yet he is victorious by the power of the Spirit. And that's encouraging to us because we're, we're, we're in that boat. We are human, are we not? But we have the Holy Spirit of God, and so we can be encouraged we can be encouraged by the example of Jesus Christ. But I say that also to say Jesus is absolutely tempted. I think sometimes we think that the severity of the temptation is just not really there because he's the Son of God, and so it's easy for him. He is tempted in ways that we will never, ever know in this life. We'll never experience the, the gravity, the magnitude of the kinds of temptations that Jesus experiences, even here in this text. And so you have to know that. And on top of that, Jesus here is being tested when he is most vulnerable, at his most vulnerable point, because it tells us, and I think this is just, just a little clue, it says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. Now that seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you would think that he is, would be hungry, right? But I, I've been told this, that if you fast for a very long period of time, you go through hunger pains, and then at a certain point, those pains stop. 
and for a time, you, you feel good, you feel okay, you feel normal. But then, 40 days is, is the longest you can go without eating. You can only go a few days without water. You can go 40 days without food. And there at, the, at that 40-day mark, the hunger pains come back, and what that essentially is is an indicator that you're about to die. You're on the brink of starvation. And so the hunger pains are excruciating. And so this, I believe, is where Jesus is at. And that's why I think that, that little indicator is in there. So we need to know Jesus, truly man at his most vulnerable point, enters into temptation. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, like us, truly man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And so Jesus experienced temptation in the severest of ways at his most vulnerable point, and as a result, he is able to aid us who are tempted. He can relate. He can sympathize. Isn't that awesome? You need to know that. You have a Savior who has been there he understands. He relates. He sympathizes with your suffering, with your temptation, with your weakness, and He is able to aid you in the midst of it. It's glorious. And so now the battle is joined. Verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. This would be better rendered since you are the Son of God. Oftentimes when the word if is used like this, it's not questioning a reality. It's, it's, it's basically saying since you are. Satan knows full well who Jesus is. There's no question there. And he's basically saying because of who you are, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, Satan begins the attack by appealing to appetite. Appealing to the appetite. Now, this is a major tactic of the enemy. It's an easy target. Our appetites are usually the first way in which we go, right? That is, I think, most often, that is the battle that we face, this flesh, the cravings of the flesh. The flesh wants what it wants, and you can throw as much fire, uh, wood on that fire as you want. It will only grow and consume more. It never says enough. And so that is the first place that Satan starts, and he's going to appeal to Jesus' appetite. And this is, I think, just the most devastating enemy for most of us. And because in reality, you know, Jesus had not eaten in 40 days. Now, if I haven't eaten in like three or four hours, I'm hangry, and I am about to ready to lose my religion. <laughs> That's all it takes. And so we understand very well that this is serious business, and the enemy is crafty. He knows what he's doing. He is deceptive. And he comes after Jesus, and he seizes upon this particular area. And what he's really getting at is God's provision here. God's provision. You can't trust God to provide. Look at you. God called you out here. Here you are in this barren wasteland. You're starving to death. You're the Son of God. You can handle this on your own. You don't need the Father. You see those stones there? Turn it to bread. Just eat. Just take care of your needs. You can do this on your own. 
You're out here in the middle of nowhere. Where is God? Can you relate with that? I think all of that is really built into this. You're out here and God is not. Or maybe, you know, what's the big deal? It's just some bread. It's just some bread. This is a legitimate need. There's nothing lavish about this. You know, just turn it into bread. Just eat. You know you're hungry. You know you need it. You know you want it. You know you can do it. So just do it. Don't you know who you are? You're the Son of God. You deserve better than this. You deserve better than how the Father is treating you right now. What kind of father does that to his son? You can just hear all of that. Why would he let you go hungry like this? When is God going to come through? You know, I just think all of that. Then he's just whispering that in his ears as he is fiercely fighting against temptation. And I think we, we can relate with all of that. We, we hear those same things when we are tempted to trust God's goodness and God's provision in our own lives. And you can tell that this is really what Satan is getting at, trusting God's provision, by Jesus' response. Because Jesus is going to say now in verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I think the first obvious application here is that Jesus fights temptation with the Word of God. Jesus fights temptation with the Word of God. He's equipped. And so when the, the word of temptation comes, He responds back with, it is written. The Word of God says. And it is literally, it is written as literally, it stands written. It stands written. And what that means is, what was true then is true now. What was true then is true now. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to know that because what was true then is true now, folks. The world wants to tell us that the times have changed and that God needs to change and that God's Word is no longer relevant. But you know what? What was true then is true now. And so whatever area in which you are, are tempted, you can go to the Word of God and know it is written, it stands written, and it is authoritative, and it is sufficient for your life, for godliness. And so that is right where Jesus goes. He's equipped with the Word of God to do battle. So that's what, you know, we need to be equipped. How can a young man fight against sin, a young woman, by hiding God's Word in their hearts? You've got to hide God's Word in your heart. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to be able to do battle with the Word of God, with the sword of the Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus does, and it's a great example for us. And where does He go? He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's another thing. How many of you in here can do battle with Deuteronomy? You know, I mean, Jesus frequently referenced, I mean, they didn't have the New Testament writings at the time, so that's kind of an obvious thing. But man, the Old Testament Scriptures are powerful. They are relevant. And they are the Word of God. And so we want to be equipped with the whole Bible. And Jesus did battle with Deuteronomy. And what he's referring to here in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is where Moses reminds the Israelites of God's faithful provision for them over all the years. That is what Jesus points to. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Verse 2, 
It says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger, and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. That's the text that Jesus points to when Satan tries to tempt him to turn the stones into bread. What's going on here? Well, see, we're told here in this text that God tested His people in the wilderness so that they would learn to trust Him, so that they would learn to trust His provision. God allowed them to hunger for a time that He might reveal to them what was in their hearts through hardship, whether they would actually trust Him and remain loyal to Him no matter what, even in seasons of lack. Would they still trust His goodness and trust His provision? Then, at the right moment, He would provide for them in amazing and miraculous ways. And He says that, we gave you, He gave you manna, food which you did not know. They had never heard of this before. This was a, a brand new thing. You know what manna means, the word? It means, what is it? Because they're like, what is this stuff? And so, God provided for them in a way that they did not expect. Isn't that what God does? We're in a situation where we don't know where it's going to come from, how it's going to come. We just know that we have real needs. And we wonder, God, are you going to show up? God, are you going to provide? And then God does in the 11th hour in ways that we could have never expected. And so often above and beyond what we could have ever expected or hoped for. And so he's, he's pointing to that. And God said, not only that, but your clothes didn't wear out and your feet did not swell. Forty years that's miraculous. So their food, their clothing, even their physical strength did not wear out. Why? So that they would know that God's Word could be trusted. So that they could know that God is faithful and God will take care of His people. This is the point Jesus was making with Satan. I'm not going to doubt my Father's goodness. I'm not going to doubt His Word. I'm not going to doubt His faithfulness to provide for me. Jesus says, I'd rather die than to not put my trust in the Father. Man, that's amazing. Jesus could say, my Father's promise is more precious to me than food itself. That's amazing. And see, that's God's goal in testing us. He's not tempting us, but He's testing us. He's refining us, showing us what's in our hearts, purifying our hearts, such that our knee-jerk response in trials is to say, I trust God no matter what. That's what God's trying to do in our hearts and our lives. And that was what Jesus could do, just like that. In his most vulnerable moment, when Satan came to him and said, just do it, just go for it, just turn these, you can't trust God. Jesus said, oh yes, I can. I can and I will. God's word is more precious to me than even food right now. And so, do we trust God's provision in our own lives? Can we count on the Father to provide for our needs? Absolutely we can. But so often we don't. If we're just going to be real, we, we don't. You know, Jesus passed the test, but we fail it. You know, sometimes I think people are tempted to, to go out and get provisions, even if they have to do it in sinful ways. 
even if they have to be unethical about it. They have to take whatever steps are necessary to get what they need, even if it means not trusting God and sinning against God. I think oftentimes we sacrifice the important things. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that all of these other things will be added to us, right? But we don't. We sacrifice the kingdom of God and we go after these other things. And so that's not trusting the Father. That's not trusting God's provision. And we will work tirelessly and we will sacrifice family. We will sacrifice sleep. We will sacrifice the things of the Lord, we will sacrifice help, we will sacrifice all of that and not trust in God's goodness and provision in our lives. Or we live in a constant state of anxiety and worry over provision, just constantly crippled, paralysis, fear, not trusting God. You know, and the reality is we do. We fail the test. But that's the beauty of the gospel because even though we fail the test, Jesus did not. And even though we fall short so often, Jesus did not fall short. And He stands in our place as the one who has passed the test for us in the sight of God. And so, even if you struggle in this area, even if you have failed in this area, even if you do are failing in this area, there's grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. There's hope. You can trust God. You can look to His Look to His faithfulness in your own life and you can move forward knowing that He who was faithful before will be faithful again. Amen? So are we trusting God's provision? When you're tempted, when you're tempted, remember God is faithful no matter what. God's promises will never fail. God's Word will stand. He will take care of you. He will supply for your needs. He absolutely will. He's a good shepherd and His sheep will not want. And so Jesus did not fail this test. Satan came. He targeted in on this, but it didn't work. So did Satan give up? Did he say, ah, well, you know, I'll move on? No, he said, backup plan, plan B. So now, test number two, he's going to, he's going to test Jesus against trusting God's timing. God's timing. Man, can we relate to this? God's time and our time, they're not the same. God is not on our time, and we want Him to be. We try to make Him be on our time. And so we see the same thing happen here. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So now the devil takes Jesus and sets him high up on this pinnacle there of the, at the temple. I've always kind of wondered in my mind, what exactly does that look like? You know? um, and so one commentator says that this was probably a roof with a portico. So that's like a, a huge porch with several pillars on the southeast corner of the temple complex where a massive retaining wall reached from a level well above the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley. So this was about a 450-foot drop, according to Josephus. That's a long way down. That's a long way down. And it's right there in the hub, in the center of worship in Jerusalem. All the religious leaders are there. All of Jesus' adversaries, all the haters, all the naysayers, 
They're all out there. And Satan takes them up there and says, just throw yourself off. And then Satan himself quotes Scripture. He quotes Scripture, but then he twists the Scripture. Now, he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 10 through 13. It says, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. And what this psalm is essentially saying is that God's children, God will not allow, God's children, no harm will come upon them apart from God allowing it to happen. Right? So the enemy can do nothing to us unless God himself gives him permission. We are here as long as God will have us be here. And so we can live with confidence, boldly. We don't have to live with fear. When our time is up, it is up. It won't happen any sooner than God allows it to happen. And so that's the idea. But Satan takes this and he twists it and tries to apply it in such a way that Jesus would put God to the test. And what Satan is essentially saying here is, hey, you are God's son. God's not going to let you be harmed. It even says that he will send his angels to carry you so you don't stub your toe on a rock. Right? So take God at his word. Prove to the whole world right now who you are. Throw yourself down and God will save you. And when he does, everybody's going to know that you are exactly who you say you are. You are the son of God. And the whole world's going to see it. The whole world is going to know it. All those doubters, all those haters, they're going to know who you really are. Man, Jesus just got started here. This is like day one. He just got baptized, went into the wilderness. He's got a few years of ministry ahead of him before he finally accomplishes that for which he actually came, to die upon the cross for the sins of the world and Satan's like, just, just get it over today, just right now. Just jump. Make God act on your behalf. Show everybody who you actually are. Don't wait around. There's no reason to stretch this out. Just get it done today. So what does Jesus say to him? How does Jesus respond to this? He says, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 7. It's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So now Jesus once again quotes Scripture, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. That is, you shall not presume upon God. You shall not try to manipulate, coerce, or force God's hand. God, God is not going to bow to our will. and We cannot manipulate God or put God in a box and force God to act. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, and this is referring to a scene that happens in Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, where the people were challenging God's goodness. They were challenging God's goodness. Now, God had already sent a deliverer into Egypt, Moses. They were miraculously delivered out of Egyptian bondage, all by the hand of God. And then they, you know the story, they were brought through the Red Sea miraculously, and then as soon as they get to the first water source there uh, 
it's, it's polluted. They can't drink it. They're thirsting to death. What does God do? He miraculously makes the water sweet, clean. And so there they are provided for. And then they're hungry, so God gives them manna. And then they get sick of the manna, and they're like, bread, 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 we want meat. So what does God do? He gives them meat. And so over and over and over, God is providing for them in very miraculous and unique ways. Yet now, again, here we are in Exodus 17, they are questioning God's goodness. This time to provide water when He had already done that before. So Exodus 17, verse 1, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And there, there it is right there. I think that's, that's the, the point here is that line there. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us? Is that, is that what you have done? And that is tempting the Lord. Has God not demonstrated time and again His faithfulness to them in provision? They want God to act. And they say, God, you're not a faithful God. You're not a faithful God. You're not a good God. You brought me out here just to kill me. I mean, how often do we think that kind of stuff? You may never think that, but you may say, God, you brought me this far, and you're going to leave me now. Don't we do that? Don't we think, God, you've been faithful up to this point, but I'm not so sure that you will be faithful again. I think we, we struggle with that area when God has already demonstrated over and over and over His faithfulness to us. So what do we want? We want God to prove it. Prove it again. Prove it again. Prove it again. As if God has not already proven His steadfast faithfulness time and time again. And so Jesus applies this to Satan's temptation to try to force God's hand. God, if you were really good, you would do this. And so... Satan is saying, jump off the temple. God will show up. You will force his hand and he will demonstrate from the world to see right now today who you really are. You can force God to act right now. But Jesus says, no. No. I'm not going to do anything to try to force my Father's hand. He does not have to demonstrate his faithfulness to me. He already has. He will. God would vindicate His Son in His good timing. And Jesus wasn't going to try to make it happen. Jesus was going to go the long distance. He was going to go the long haul. He was going to trust the Father's timing. You know, do we try to force God's hand and complain and doubt His goodness? We do. We do, you know. Do you want instant results? Do you want it to happen today? Do you find yourself saying, I'm not happy with where I'm at. I'm not happy with what God has for me right now. I want more. I want better. We want God to hurry up and get with it. We stress out that we're going to miss out. We find creative ways to make things happen on our own because we want it now. I don't know about you. I, that's me. You know, I'm, I'm always coming up with creative and clever ways to make stuff happen. It stresses my wife out. 
I mean, it's just always been that way. Even before, even when we were dating, she just picked up on that, you know. And so it's just ever before me, this desire to try to help God out. God, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to come up with a perfect plan. And we can make things happen now, speed up the process. So would you just go ahead and just bless that, endorse that for me, make it happen. You know, we question, maybe we question God's love, His goodness, His faithfulness, His timing. Jesus didn't do any of that. You know, what more must God do? Romans 5, Romans 5 verses 6 through 8 says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated in His good timing His faithfulness and His love for us. God demonstrated that while we were sinners, when we were at our most unlovely point in life, God sent His Son to die for us and to demonstrate God's amazing, incredible love for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son. God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him freely give us all things? God is for us, folks. God at the right time has demonstrated His love in such an amazing and profound way. What more must He do? And if He did not spare even His own Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all good things, the Bible says. And so the reality is we can trust God. We can trust God's timing. We can trust God's plan. We can trust God's faithfulness. We can trust God's love. We don't ever have to question that. We don't have to challenge that. We don't have to coerce God. We don't have to try to put God in a place where He's going to show up and show out on our behalf. We trust God's timing. We trust God's faithfulness. Amen? Maybe you're in a place right now where you're feeling like you need to make something happen. Maybe you're just struggling right now. You know, maybe you're not really happy with, with your lot in life. But God is faithful. And at the right time, God is going to show up. God's going to move. God's going to do something sweet, something glorious for His own honor and for your own good because He loves you. And so we need to trust God's timing in our own lives. You know, and if you'll just stay the course, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, don't divert. Don't turn to the left or the right. Don't go backwards. Don't go back. Just keep moving forward. And God's good timing, God's good blessings will unfold in your life. Because He's faithful. Because He's already demonstrated that He's for us. That He's with us. And God's plans are always good. And that leads us to the third and final test. So once again, Jesus withstood... He said, I'm not going to try to make this happen in my time. I'm not going to provide for myself. I'm going to trust God's provision. I'm not going to test God and try to force His hand. I'm going to trust His time and His provision. And now Satan is going to try to tempt him against trusting God's plan, God's path. 
Trusting God's plan for your life. Trusting the path that God has set before us. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is fascinating. Some, peop- some have actually suggested that this was a vision of all the kingdoms of the world in all ages. And so all the glory of all the kingdoms there at that time, but then from beyond that point even till now, you could just consider all the, the glorious kingdoms in the world in which we live today. And Jesus got a glimpse of that. And then Satan said, you can have all this right now. I will give this to you right now. What's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't challenge his ability to do that. He doesn't say, it's not yours to give. And Satan says, I will give this to you right now. And what it appears is happening here is Satan is offering Jesus an easy way out. An easy way out. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, to redeem the world, to ransom the world, if you will. Right now, the world as we know it is what is called the kingdom of darkness. And it is under the sway of the wicked one. And everybody in that kingdom is in bondage to Satan, blind, dead, separated from God, enemies of God, rebels against a holy God. And Jesus came to set that world free. Jesus came to set things back right, to redeem, to restore, to renew all things back to God. But until that day happens in its fullness, the world itself belongs to Satan. The Bible says he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the king of this kingdom. And he says, look, I'll just give you. You came for the kingdom, I'll just give it to you. How about that? You can have it. You can have it. There's just one thing. Fall down and worship me right now. Look, Jesus, you don't need to suffer You don't need to suffer. I have a better way. I have an easier way. The path of least resistance. Don't we we like that? Isn't that what we want? We want the path of least resistance. We want ease. We want comfort. We don't want pain. We don't want suffering. We don't want hardship. We don't want to be patient. We don't want to wait. We want it now, and we want the easy way. Satan is saying, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to do all that. You can have it all right now. Satan is offering Jesus a crown without a cross. Satan is offering Jesus a crown without a cross. So we've been called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower. We have to die to ourselves, our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, our security, our safety, our little kingdoms that we're trying to build here, we die to that. We take up our cross. That's what that means. The cross is an instrument of death, capital punishment. A person was put on that cross, and they would die there. It's been said, one thing you know about a man carrying a cross out of town was he ain't coming back. He's not coming back. We've been called to die to ourselves and to walk with God. And then sometimes it's a hard path to walk. Jesus's certainly was. And Satan tried to tempt him away from that. This is not the path for you, Jesus. I've got a better path. I have a path of glory without the suffering, without the sacrifice. All you have to do is worship me. 
fall down and worship me, and I will give you something better. Man, is that not the temptation that is ever before us? I've got something better for you. I have something that you know you want. It's always being dangled right out there in front of you. Just go this way. Just have this. You can have it right now. You don't have to go through all of that other stuff. Just take it. And we're being bombarded. with It's just all around us all the time. All the time in the culture that we live, in the world that we live. And so what is Jesus' response to this? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. So now Jesus gets mad. Now Jesus responds with holy anger. Away with you, Satan. Away with you. Now Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6 for the final time. And this time it's a warning to stay loyal to God no matter what. To not be drawn away, not to stray away, not to worship other gods, but to stay fiercely loyal to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 10, Moses is rehearsing for the people what's going to happen when they get into the promised land. He says, So it shall be. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. That's the verse that Jesus points to. Now, Moses here is warning of a time when life is going to get easy and they're going to get lax. You're going to go into this land and it's going to be bursting, a land flowing with milk and honey. And when you go in and you begin to enjoy all of these things, you're going to get comfortable. You're going to get relaxed. The battle is going to cool down. Life is going to get real comfortable, and you are going to be tempted to forget God. You're going to forget God who delivered you out of the house of bondage and provided for you every step of the way. And not only that, you're going to be tempted to worship other gods. You're going to want to go a different path. And he warned that God is a jealous God and that they are not to go after other gods. And so... What Satan is tempting Jesus with here is glory. Glory. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. It's at your disposal. Don't go the path of God. Go the path of ease, of resistance, at least uh, less resistance. You can have all the kingdoms of the world, and you can have all of this glory. It is all yours. Jesus would have self-exaltation through ill-gotten glory. And Jesus said, absolutely not. I will not forget my God. I will worship God, and Him alone will I serve. His path may be one of suffering, but it is the only path worth walking. Can you agree with that with me today? God's path is the only path worth walking. We don't want to go back. We don't want to turn from the left or to the right. Jesus would not forfeit God's eternal blessing for Satan's temporal glory. And that's just it. It's very temporary. The pleasures of this world, the pleasures of sin, they're passing. They're temporary. It's fun at first, and then it has you, and you're a slave to it. 
and it will kill you in the end. When sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Jesus wasn't willing to cash in God's plan, God's path, God's purpose for ill-gotten glory, for the path of least resistance, for any of that. He was going to walk the path that God set before him no matter what. You know, when things get hard, we're tempted to think, I didn't sign up for this. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought, I did not sign up for this, okay? I didn't expect all of this. I didn't expect to get punched in the face like that, right? And so, we did sign up for this. We did sign up for this. How about this? Do you deceptively remember the fun moments? You remember that past life? that it was we were in slavery we were in bondage we didn't come out of that life because it was so great there was a reason we came out of that life but then what happens we get comfortable things get things get nice pleasant and then we start remembering little moments in the past like that was so great somehow we're tempted to go back isn't that what the egyptians did they're like man it was or the the israelites did about egypt they said it was better back in egypt And so we're tempted to step off the path that God has for us. We're tempted to turn from the left or to the right. You know what? We're tempted to worship other things, lesser things. We want to worship ourselves. We want to worship pleasure. We want to worship a whole host of all the things that this world has to offer instead of staying God's path, staying the course. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He did not stray. He remained loyal to God to the very end. He withstood. He withstood all all those temptations to doubt God's provision, to question God's timing, to to, to reject God's path and God's plan. He was tempted in all those points, and he did not fail. He did not fail. Verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Man, praise God for that. Jesus withstood. Jesus withstood and overcame the fiercest temptation. And this really is the ultimate point of the text. It's easy to make application here and to make it all about us, but it really is all about Him. There stands one who through the severest of testing obeyed God's law in every single point. Was there anybody who was ever going to be able to withstand temptation perfectly? Yes, it was Him, Jesus, the Son of God. Behold our Savior. Behold our champion. Praise God that there came one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because we do fall. We do struggle. We do give to temptation. But our king did not. Our king was stood to the very end. He was victorious in every single way. In our place. And Hebrews 4.15 says... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Is He your King? Is He your Savior? Because we have all fallen to temptation time and again. And if you don't know Jesus, then you stand accountable to a holy God in whom you have sinned against. You succumbed to temptation. You have worshipped other gods. You have rejected God's path. You have rejected God's provision for you, even in that He provided His own Son. 
up to this moment, you've rejected even that. But you can know Christ. You can know Him personally. You can know Him savingly. And His perfect righteousness, His perfect life that He lived, that He demonstrated, that becomes yours through your union with Him. As you are born again, as Christ lives within you, and you and He are one, His victories become your victories. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. And God looks upon you with great pleasure as His child, as His son, as His daughter. We need that. I need that. You need that. If you don't have that, you can have it today. Today is the day. You can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be born again. You can have life abundantly forevermore. You can have the Holy Spirit of God who is with you and will be with you through all the fiercest of temptations. And when you do struggle and fall, you can know that Jesus has kept the law perfectly for you. It's okay. There's grace. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? So let us be those who understand God's love, who trust God's provision. Let us be those who trust God's timing. Let us be those who trust God's plan and God's path and stay on the course no matter what. In the name of Jesus, amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. We thank you, God, that you're with us. Thank you that you are for us. Thank you that you have proven that by sending your son Jesus to die in our stead. He rose again from the grave, and he is now alive forevermore, seated at your right hand where he intercedes on our behalf forevermore. We worship you, Father. Help us. I pray for us all in here today, this coming week, as we face various temptations of every stripe. God, be with us. Go before us. Give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to withstand and to overcome. May we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we cling to his example. May we trust you in every point. And may we walk with you faithfully. You've been faithful up to this point, and you will remain faithful even still. We believe that, God. We trust that. May that be the cry of our heart and the song of our mouth. Faithful you are. Faithful you will ever be. Praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.